And I'm your co-host of TCB Radio Network and Elvis tribute artist, Peter Alden. Welcome to the TCB Radio Network podcast. Get ready for some Elvis content and news you can use, where it's all Elvis, all the time. Interviews with authors, Elvis fan club presidents, artists, musicians, and of course, close personal friends of Elvis Presley, people who knew him, the man himself. Thank you for tuning in. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. It's time for the TCB Radio Network Podcast. Elvis Ignited author Bob Keeling has won five Emmy Awards and an Edward R. Murrow Prize as a reporter for West TV in Orlando. In his spare time, he's a chronicler of Florida's role in American culture with books about musician Graham Parsons and Jack Kerouac and Brownie Wise, the woman who built the Tupperware empire. Elvis Ignited is his new book. It tracks the rising star through his tours of Florida from 1955 when Presley was an unknown to 1956 when Presley played more concerts in Florida than any other state. Bob, welcome to TCB Radio Network. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here, TCB. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, listen, uh, uh, quite honestly, the first question uh, would be is where was Elvis's starting point here in Florida? It was at the Peabody Auditorium, uh, May 7th, 1955. And what's so compelling about that is, um, you know, for the Elvis fan, I'm sure they're aware of May Axton recounting um, happening upon Elvis as he's at the motel there and just looking at the ocean and he just cannot believe how vast it is. And instead of, you know, looking at all the bathing beauties and, you know, the little girls and everything, he's wishing his mom and dad could be there to see it with him. And I think that's really a testament to his overall character. So, yep, it started in Daytona Beach. Bob, that's what I love about this book. Um, It's because it could just come off as like he stopped here and he did this and he stopped here and he did that. But you have really weaved it together in such a beautiful way that it's it's very personal. And and that is such a great story. It just talks about Elvis and how he was thinking of his mom and dad that day instead of, you know, you could just picture it in your head. He was looking over the beach and you kind of get a peek into what he was really like, especially in the beginning. Yeah, and you know that was my goal was to try to do something more than just nostalgia. Because let's face it, if if any of us tried to put together all of the great Elvis nostalgia that we have collectively, how big would the book be? About ten thousand pages. Yeah. So you know, my publisher might frown on that. So it was more along the lines of, okay, let's look beyond the nostalgia and try and put you know, weave together a story of his time in Florida. And, you know, when you start to stack it all up, it it became apparent to me that his career would not have happened without Florida and Floridians. It just wouldn't have. Yeah, that's the one thing that that I really liked about the book, getting back to what you were saying. And so much of Elvis's story has been told, his birth, going to Vegas, all the movies. But I I do I love the fact that that you're concentrating just on one specific state and the role that Florida played 
in in his career, and, and obviously everybody knows the famous story about being filmed in Jacksonville, but but no, but I mean, some of these other stories, I didn't I didn't know some of these stories, and so it was it was it was really neat to quite honestly get a chance to read some stories that that you hadn't heard before. Well, and, and let's take a couple of examples in terms of the Floridians who were absolutely crucial in his career. Tom Parker, who drifted down to you know the Tampa area after a really dark time in his life um, when he was basically put in prison for desertion, and then he manages to come down to Florida and start his own career. You know, at the he's he's a, a dog catcher basically at the Hillsborough County Humane Society. But he starts to promote shows at the Homer Hesterly Armory in the 40s to raise money for the Humane Society. That's how he gets a taste for show business. And before you know it, by 1945, he's managing Eddie Arnold. And you know, we could also talk about Mae Axton, you know, the ambitious school teacher from Jacksonville, who just happened to co-write a little song by the name of Heartbreak Hotel. Exactly, exactly. Which changed his career, but she did more than that. She also had a DJ friend of hers who had just toured with Elvis come and uh, cut the demo the same day in her little house in Jacksonville that has no historic recognition whatsoever. It's the song that changed his life and his career. Hmm. Yeah, and anybody can you can still drive by that house and see it, right? Sure, but there, there's it, it looks like any other uh, house in West uh, Jacksonville near downtown. You'd never know the historic importance of it, mm-hmm. and really, that's what I try to do in all of my books. Is I my, my goal is through the research is to find these places that aren't recognized or are minimally recognized and then try and bang the drum for historic preservation and recognition and certainly i would say uh you know may axton's house there on delwood avenue in jacksonville is ripe for that kind of recognition it it changed his life what happened there in that one day in 1955 yeah and and certainly you could you could argue that heartbreak hotel was one of the most if not the most important song in in getting his getting him national notoriety no doubt it was his first million seller i mean that was the one that really broke him big at the same time he's going on all the tv shows and you know it's so funny that sam phillips is like oh what in the world is this morbid mess of a song and <laughs> you know uh, may, may was persistent and managed to get it into his hands and the rest is history yeah How'd you find these people, Bob, like Dorothy, who just, you know, happened to be at one of those early shows and and has a picture of herself kissing Elvis? How'd you find some of these people that I just can't even imagine? (laughs) Yeah, it was just one leading to another. And, you know, people were very generous with their time. And really, that that is such a compelling aspect of it to, to hear about these folks who um, got into Elvis back when he was a nobody mm-hmm. and, you know, she decides to, you know, ride the bus from Daytona beach over to Orlando. They, she and her friend didn't even have tickets to the show and they just hang out outside, you know, what was then the municipal auditorium in Orlando. We now know it as Bob Carr. Right. And sure enough, here comes Elvis just walking up, you know, a few minutes before the show, like he would do. And they've got these great pictures of him with them. It looks like he's their prom date if you look at these pictures. So, and he, he, you know, kisses her right on the lips, and now it's a T-shirt she wears all the time. Wow! <laughs> yeah, isn't that neat? 
I would too if I had that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to imagine a time when he was a nobody, you know. But that's what's so compelling about all these early years in Florida is he went from being a nobody to the biggest thing in a in a fifteen month span. Yeah, um, that's what that's what I love with the stories, especially with uh, you know when when the colonel got involved with him and and you were talking about how you know he started out he was like the last act listed on the poster down at the very very bottom and, and then all of a sudden he his name starts gradually moving up the uh, <laughs> up the the lineup. Well, you know, I'm I'm sitting here looking at the book now and I'm I'm looking at one of the, my really favorite interviews from to, to your point exactly jim kirk who was the uh general manager of the country music radio station in ocala and we're actually sitting together in the southeastern pavilion where elvis was supposed to be way down on the bill after all it was just his first tour in 55 but yet parker convinced kirk let this guy close the show i promise he won't hurt anything let him close the show and Jim Kirk told me the story about how nervous he was to do it, but he did. And that was Elvis's first headlining opportunity in Florida. And perhaps, I think, across the country was right there in Ocala at the Southeastern Pavilion. And, you know, that would be another place if you want to go and visit. That's a very moving place as well. Mm, yeah, we'll do it. Yeah, I, I did get a kick because Krista said she, uh, when she was asking for the names of these places, she said, well, you should come with us. And you were like, nah, been there. <laughs> well, <laughs> now, I've been all, I've been all these places, the Chris. Clark, I don't... <laughs> it's not a short trip. It, it, you know, that's the amazing thing. Uh, when you start putting all of these shows together, 59 shows in 15 months in Florida, you, you, you realize he was everywhere. Mm-hmm. He was literally everywhere. Yeah. So whether you're in Pensacola, Daytona Beach, West Palm, Sarasota, Fort Myers, Lakeland, Orlando, you know, Miami Beach, he was everywhere. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a part of the state that he didn't touch. Well, I know you're a documented, you're, you're a Florida historian, basically. So I'm just wondering what made you put the two together, Elvis in Florida, and, and write a book about it? Well, I had just written about a tragic uh, country rock musician by the name of Graham Parsons. And he's kind of seen as the avatar. He's the father of country rock music. And he's from Winter Haven. And he has this remarkable story uh, himself. But Graham saw Elvis on one of his Florida tours when he was nine years old, and it changed his life. And from then on, he wanted to pursue music. And then, of course, we know about little Tommy Petty at 11 years old, meeting Elvis in Ocala while he's shooting Follow That Dream. And you start to see how Elvis really was like the Johnny Appleseed of rock and roll. And, and to me, it was no accident that after all of these monumental tours in the 50s, there were garage bands sprouting up all over the peninsula. The, and, that's, I, have to, I have never heard that analogy before, but Bob, that's a great analogy. Elvis really is think, the Johnny really Appleseed of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he threw the pebble in the pond. And, yeah. you know, he was the first guy to really be able to pull off some of the rhythm and blues music as well, like Little Richard, Tutti Frutti, and do it with credibility. And introduce, you know, suburban kids to rock and roll. So, um, and, and a lot of that happened here. You know, you saw a lot of that take place in Florida as he goes from being this nobody in 55 to the white hottest thing in the nation by August of 56 when he's touring Florida. 
And the attention of a Florida notable, I know uh, Bob Graham, didn't he give you a call when he heard you were writing this book? Oh, yeah, that was the funniest thing. You know, I had been trying to, of course, the great statesman, and and I was working um, that day, and I get this call from the 305 area code, and I almost didn't answer it. And I, you know, just answered it, not really expecting anything. He's like, yeah, Mr. Keeling? Yes. Bob Graham, tell me about Elvis. And I was taken aback, and I'm like, well, good afternoon, Governor. I was kind of hoping you'd tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually saw Elvis in one of his seven Miami shows that first week of August 1956 when Governor Graham was a 19-year-old student at, at, at UF. And, you know, I asked him about, you know, the allegations that Elvis was obscene. And, and he gives this thoughtful pause, and he goes, well... I wouldn't say that Elvis was obscene. However, I would say his show was quite provocative. <laughs> <laughs> you have to imagine. Come on, Governor. We're no... <laughs> that, but, yeah, that was that was another real special interview during the course of uh, this book, for sure. We'll be right back with today's interview after this announcement from Cruising with the King. Are you ready to celebrate Elvis and cast your cares away with us on Royal Caribbean's Enchantment of the Seas? Non-stop activities, VIP gift bags, daily exclusive private performances by the co-host of TCB Radio Network, Peter Alden, and other big name artists. This is Krista Joy, founder of TCB Radio Network, and I'll be on board too. Join us for Cruising with the King aboard Royal Caribbean's Enchantment of the Seas, sailing April 1st through 5th, 2019. You'll meet Elvis' co-star from Kissin' Cousins, Cynthia Pepper, his personal nurse and good friend, Marion Cock, plus many talented performers celebrating the king of rock and roll. Karaoke, Elvis Bingo with up to $500 in prizes, Elvis on a Shelf, Door Decorating Contest, Question and Answer Session with Elvis's Nurse Marion Cock, Special Group T-Shirts, Up Close and Personal Interactions with the Performers, and many opportunities for impromptu selfies are all included. Be sure to use code PA1 for a special gift. Details, video, and more can be found at tcbradionetwork.com. Just type CRUISE in the search bar. Join us April 1st through 5th, 2019 on Royal Caribbean for Cruising with the King. Be sure to use booking code PA1. Did you, now, uh, I'm assuming that you uh, got all, all around the Polk Theater. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was down there with the book um, uh, at the college down there last October and oh man that's one of my favorite places all the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture and the yeah, Elvis that's... stories there and in fact there's uh really that may be the most important stop of his last tour was the one in Lakeland well I uh I graduated from Florida Southern College so I'm very familiar with the Polk Theater so uh since that played such an important role um in Elvis's career, and I, I know you got a chance to get down there. So, can you tell us a little bit about that, and maybe go into the importance of um, some of the women in Elvis's early career? Yeah, and, and really, that Lakeland stop in August of '56 is a prime example of 
the, the women reporters of the day who were really trailblazers in their own right, uh, taking Elvis much more seriously many times than their male counterparts. And, and I talk a lot about a young reporter by the name of Elva Lee Donaldson, who worked for the Lakeland Ledger. And if you look at her incisive reporting, it, it makes you know the comments of, of her male counterparts really laughable. And the same could be said for, uh, say, Anne Rowe in Tampa St. Pete, where she's taking time to get to know Presley while, you know, the men are filing reports saying that Presley has an effeminate voice. And it just it was drivel. Some of the stuff they wrote compared to their female counterparts. The, old, the other one, too, is Jean Yothers with the Orlando Sentinel Star, who was the first Florida journalist Back in 55, when Elvis was nothing, she saw what was coming. She said, you know, this guy is the real deal. And she was absolutely right. And, and some, of the early, uh, some of the early disc jockeys, too, were like, um, again, the pipe pipers. They were the ones telling their listeners. I'm thinking of a guy named Nervous Ned Needham up in Ocala for WMOP. <laughs> you know, he, he talked about, the, you know, Presley is going to be a big thing and Sure enough, so it, it was fun to find those stories too of the of the trailblazing women journalists and the early disc jockeys who also gave Elvis a big lift, not only in Florida but across the Southeast. Some of these guys who were just spinning records could see it coming, and big stars like Jackie Gleason thought he was a flash in the pan, and so did Sinatra. Yeah. Frank Sinatra thought he wasn't going to last. Sure. I mean, Sinatra was one of his most vitriolic critics, and yet when Elvis came back from the Army, that's another thing in the book is the Elvis special that they filmed in Miami at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And, you know, Sinatra and his team paid Presley a small fortune to be on the show, and um, the tide had turned by then. Yeah, yeah. Somebody else was in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah, and making the big bucks. Well, and the, and the, the, the ironic thing is that early Elvis is very reminiscent of early Sinatra. Yeah, it's true. Very controversial. And I think the guys like Sinatra saw that Presley was the next big thing, just like Presley was a bit threatened by the Beatles when they came in 64. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, the talent is what separates the contenders from the pretenders. And both Presley and the Beatles had that staying power because of the of the bedrock of talent. There's no way to fake it. Have you always been an Elvis fan? Yeah, I, I'd say that's I'd say that's fair. My wife is from Memphis, and her dad actually worked at the dealership where Elvis would come in and you know buy the cars late at night. You know when he was kind of operating more on a vampire schedule. You <laughs> yes. know, cause he just he couldn't get out otherwise and. She would tell stories of going up and being able to drive up the, the driveway at Graceland and, you know, look at the Christmas decorations way back in the day. And so, yeah, there's a there's a real special place in our family for Elvis, no doubt about it. We talked a little bit earlier about um, about follow that dream and, and you had a chance to talk to Ann Helm. And there were not just the courthouse, there were several other locations around the state that they that they did some filming. Uh, did you get a chance to visit? Any more of those places other than the courthouse? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we went to uh, the bridge uh, over Bird Creek where, uh, you know, it's over. It, it's uh, right there on this little area called Pumpkin Island, which they cleared out. And 
uh, turned into the, you know, desert island motif for uh, Follow That Dream. In fact, Elvis posed for the cover of the DVD, you know, the movie, right there on the guardrail on the Bird Creek Bridge. And, um, you know, now you'd never even know it. I mean, you blink and you miss it. And there's all kinds of places like that. The SunTrust Bank on uh, Silver Springs uh, Highway, just right outside downtown Ocala, um, you know, where Elvis, the, the one scene in the movie where Howard McNear is the nervous bank manager who thinks Elvis is coming in to rob him and faints. And, you know, there's Elvis holding him like a baby trying to get help, you know, just oh, yeah, slices I, I of life that. like that, you know. And, you know, Elvis was only 26 and... You know, he plays a down-to-earth guy in all these great old Florida locations. And I think that's why that movie especially has held up and appeals to folks down here. Because Elvis is still very much in possession of all his faculties. And Anne Helm was a really important source in this book, too. Hmm. Um, You know, she talked about his frustrations of, of not getting more challenging acting roles. And frankly, she talked about, you know, being part of you know, Elvis's descent down the rabbit hole into prescription drug addiction, but it wasn't like that when they were doing Follow That Dream, you know? They, they, she goes, we weren't drug addicts, you know? But you do start to see where he was starting to use them as a crutch, unfortunately. You know, it was just a different time then. I think with Follow That Dream, it almost came kind of on the cusp, like you said, where Elvis was starting to get tired of the roles, but they hadn't gotten so bad yet that that they were they were laughable i mean honestly elvis shows very very capable comedic timing in in follow oh, that no dream. doubt no doubt he was very talented and you know he made lots and lots of money from these roles i mean that was all tom parker really cared about you know and yeah. we could we could debate you know the tom parker was he did he wear the black hat or the white hat? Was he a good guy or a bad guy? But one thing he he did do was make great deals early on. You know, Elvis really raked in a lot of money to make these kind of average B movies. Um, but he got bored, and and you know told me about that. And, um, it was that was special too. You know, uh, again another first person source who worked with him up close and. That's those are the best sources when you're writing a book. She was really special, and and um, you know one of the stories she tells of the first you know the first time she sees him, and he's kind of checking her out in the diner and Silver Springs, and she's kind of checking him out, and it, it's just kind of fun to have those little slice of life moments too. You have these great stories that I think that's what's a pleasure to read is people people buy books about Elvis. But it's usually the same old stories you've heard time and time again. Uh, this, this was neat. It was it was uh, different stories and and um, enjoyable, like you said, to get to talk to people who knew him before he was Elvis. You know, he was yeah. just. Uh, he it, was... It, it's hard to even imagine a time when that was the case. And you know, Peter, when when I you know, you make a case for your book on a show like the one you and Krista do, these are people who are going to have more than a passing interest in Elvis. So if it's like they start reading it and go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. I've read that. I could aggregate all that on the Internet. Yeah, there's no reason to buy it. But that's, you know, one of the things I really enjoy doing is, you know, I talk about journalism. The best part of it is the journey. 
and it's going out and, and meeting these folks and hearing their stories. And um, so, yeah, it, but the reason you do that is to come up with something original, hopefully. And uh, I, I dare say that's what we were able to do with this because people say, Elvis, Florida, what do you mean? And then when you start making a case, it's like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, I, I had, I mean, I knew that he came to Florida a lot, but I had no idea. None whatsoever that Florida played that important of a role in, in his well, career. There are places now where you can go in. You know, there's a website where you can actually um, do a search and figure out, okay, where did he play the most shows? And in 1956, it was Florida. Hmm. You know, more than Mississippi and um, uh, Louisiana and Tennessee combined. Uh you know, and it was over 40 live shows in Florida in 56, and that was more than any other state in the country. So we were really lucky to have this up-close interaction with him as he was on the cusp of just superstardom. It's almost like this is these were his, where he practiced, almost practiced or got into the feel of being famous and got so good at doing what he does. He just, they crammed so many shows into such a short amount of time. They mm-hmm. did, and, and and how compelling is it? Like on his second tour of Florida, for instance, when he's the opening act for the new comedy sensation Andy Griffith. Yeah, <laughs> open for Andy Griffith it, it, here in Orlando too, for that matter. And and the picture of of Elvis that is arguably the most famous, the tonsil photo, was when he was opening up for Andy Griffith on July thirty first, nineteen fifty five, at the Homer Hester Lee Armory over in Tampa. Is that where that picture is from? That's where that picture was taken. Wow. And and that's the other thing. Some of the most historic, iconic images of Elvis were taken in Florida as well. Um, And I think the Hester Lee Armory, which has just been converted and renovated, which is part of the new Jewish community center over there. I think that's another place where if they wanted to landmark the relationship of Elvis, Florida, even Tom Parker, that's the place. Yeah, and that and that picture um, from the armory, you could arguably say, is uh, from the early '50s, one of the most prominently used. I mean that that picture that picture is everywhere. It's on his first. Oh, I think that's the the most famous mm-hmm. picture of Elvis there is. Yeah, and I think it's quintessential of what he meant to kids of that day. You know, I'm looking at it now. I'm, I've got a picture of the the Florida theater. Um, placard up on my wall you know the one from 56 where the judge wouldn't let him move around and all that right and um i i don't think there's any doubt and you know as i as i look at this poster i think one of another revelation in my book is <laughs> his little message back to the judge at the end of his very last show in florida in the 50s and this good wholesome kid kind of goes a little blue uh <laughs> in sending a message back to the judge which which was pretty surprising too because I hadn't heard that before, but yeah he uh, he uh, hurled uh, something a little more than PG back at the uh, judge who was sitting in the audience, but he did it very cleverly and not everybody heard it. Yeah, he well, and, and you think about it now what what's being done on stage and you're thinking oh my gosh. All, all Elvis did was wiggle, basically. <laughs> oh, exactly. I mean, when you think about it now, it's just so benign. And, and you know, these were people clearly who were trying to get headlines themselves. And uh, but, but Parker loved it. You know, he loved to stir up the controversy because it sold tickets. And, 
you know, he's he's always been this sort of interesting character throughout all of this narrative. You know, um, he you know, he did good at the beginning and then at the end. You know, it, it, who was it? Red West that said Elvis. He he put Elvis where he was, but then ended up putting Elvis where he is. Hmm. You know, a lot of yeah. There's a lot of strong opinions on that both ways when it comes to Parker. And and one of the, the real dark stories in the book is how he was actually a criminal. I mean, he was a deserter. And by the time he got out of prison, he was also imprisoned in Florida. And by the time he <laughs> oh got out, he was, yeah, he, he did time in military prison here. And by the time he got out, they had ruled him psychotic. And if Gladys or, you know, if... Uh, Either one of his band members had known, Scotty or Bill, they never would have let him sign with Tom Parker, but he buried it all. So was there anything else really cool that you were kind of surprised to learn? You got to do all these cool interviews and meet all these interesting people. Um, do you have any other stories you want to share about the process? You know, I feel bad for Glenn Reeves. Glenn Reeves was the disc jockey in Jacksonville who had just been part of the tour with Andy Griffith along with Elvis. And so May calls him up to say that she and Tommy Durden had just written this really neato song and they were trying to do the demo and they just couldn't get it together. So Glenn Reeves, as a favor, comes over and does the demo of Heartbreak Hotel. And you can pull it up on YouTube and listen to it. And if you hear it, you go, wow, that's not a bad little cover of Elvis's song. It's not the cover. That was the original version but when they, you know, May was very fair and, you know, she wanted to share in her, you know, good fortune if the song would do well. So she told Glenn, I, I'll give you a third of the royalties for this song for doing the demo. And he goes, I wouldn't I wouldn't have my name on a stupid song like that. You can forget it. Oh, Poor Glenn. <laughs> yeah. And I could never find any interviews from him to talk about his regret for not taking a third of the publishing for Heartbreak Hotel. So that was another interesting story along the way. So, Bob, that could be your next book, Bonehead Decisions in the History of Rock and Roll. You know, I think that could be a couple volume. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, tell everybody where they can get the book and how they can follow you on your website and social media. You bet. There's Elvis Ignited is on Facebook, and it is um, on all of the online sellers if you have a local bookstore whether it be here in florida or elsewhere go in and ask for it you know but you know if you can find one at your local brick and mortar bookstore please do the, the name of it again is elvis ignited the rise of an icon in florida and for our friends in australia and new zealand can they get it shipped overseas if they buy it on they your... certainly can it's on amazon over there as well okay fantastic well, Bob Keeling, thank you so much for spending time with us today on TCB Radio Network. We really appreciate you. Everybody, go out and get it. Elvis Ignited, the rise of an icon in Florida. We appreciate you, Bob. Yeah, thank you, you so bet. much, Bob. Thank you, Chris and Peter. Much appreciated. Thanks for the good work you did. Thanks for listening to TCB Radio Network Podcast, where we are celebrating the life and memory of Elvis Presley with a mission to share his legacy with the world. We'd also like to thank Lee Douglas of Old Time Rock and Roll, 
always found at www.oldtimernr.com for converting our show to iTunes. We appreciate you, Lee. Be sure to check out Lee's fantastic site and listen to his weekly shows, all oldies music with no commercials. TCB Radio Network is strictly a fan publication, not affiliated in any way with Elvis Presley Enterprises or any of its affiliates or subsidiaries. Please visit us online at tcbradionetwork.com. All trademarks, product names, company names, and logos mentioned are the properties of their respective owners. All opinions stated within do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone else and certainly not Elvis Presley Enterprises. Still the King, our theme song for TCB Radio Network podcast, was written by Shane Douglas, produced by Terry Fullwider at Blue Spot Studios, and performed by Peter Alden and his band, Crown Electric Company, featuring David Fontana, son of Elvis Presley's original drummer, DJ Fontana, on drums. Elvis Presley is still the king. Well, he's still the king. Got so many sure good singing. Got so many still the king.